Hey mamas, it's Megan, your host here at the VBAC Link. I am so excited to get into our amazing episode today, but before we do, I wanted to do a quick Q&A on my number one most asked question, which is how do I prepare for a VBAC? I know it's a lot to unpack, but here are some of the top answers for you. Find a VBAC supportive provider and make sure you are getting the right nutrition. This includes getting optimal amounts of protein, vitamins, and minerals to support a healthy VBAC pregnancy. I personally recommend Needed's Prenatals to all of my clients and to this amazing community of ours. Head to thisisneeded.com to get 20% off with code VBAC20. That is thisisneeded.com, code VBAC20. You are tuned into the VBAC Link Podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself, here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C-section. Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan. Hello, hello, everybody. This is the VBAC link, and we have a very special episode for you today. This is a topic that if I were to show you in the inbox, you'd be like, whoa, I don't, I didn't realize so many people have this question. And the question is, I mean, there's lots of questions, but the topic is gestational diabetes. So if you have any questions about gestational diabetes, this is your episode for sure. And then actually right before we started recording, I learned there's even other things that make us high risk or known risk for gestational diabetes. So even if you haven't ever had gestational diabetes, you're going to want to listen because there are things that we can do preventatively before pregnancy and during pregnancy to avoid it. But you guys, we have the one and only Lily Nichols on today with us talking about this extraordinarily common topic. Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified in diabetes education. She's a researcher and an author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Drawing from the current scientific literature with the wisdom of traditional cultures, her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and sensible. Her best-selling book is Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And I absolutely love the topic or the start the start of this is real food. Real food is something that I don't feel like we focus on enough in our everyday, not even during pregnancy, everyday life. We live busy lives. And so it's hard to focus on real food, but real food for gestational diabetes. And you guys, she has an online course with the same name. So real food for gestational diabetes online course. She is absolutely amazing and has even written two, well, actually two books. And now what we I learned today is going on the third. So real food for pregnancy. And Lily, what is the title of your new book? The forthcoming book is Real Food for Fertility. For Fertility. Oh my gosh, you guys, she is evidence-based. She is just, it's amazing. And you know here how much we um, respect evidence-based information, getting this to you guys so you can know the true facts. 
and go on and make decisions that are best for you. So Lily, thank you so much for being here with us today and talking about this topic, because like I said, it it is one of the most common questions we get in our inbox. Yeah, absolutely. I've spent a lot of work working on gestational diabetes, so I'm I'm happy to speak about it with you today. Yes. And tell, can you tell us a little bit more about your course? I'm going to start there um, because you have an online course. And so I think this is a great thing for anyone who has either had gestational diabetes or has it to really learn more about it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the course is really designed, it's, it's for women with gestational diabetes, not necessarily healthcare professionals. And it kind of expands upon the information that's in the Real Food for Gestational Diabetes book. So Mm -hmm. additional practical resources that support kind of like the same principles that you learned in the course, but takes it to another level. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's additional meal plans. There's like, you know, three weeks worth of meal plans at several different carbohydrate levels. So you can customize. There's more information on lowering your fasting blood sugar naturally. So with with the hopes that we can reduce or minimize your risk for medication or insulin, which depending on where you are and who your provider is, that can limit your birthing options, which mm-hmm. although I generally disagree with, that is often a policy. So we really try to use food and lifestyle as much as possible to, you know, enhance your your ability to keep your blood sugar under control. Probably some of the biggest benefits though of the course is that we do have a private Facebook community Mm -hmm. just for course participants. And I do host weekly office hours. So people will share what's going on with their blood sugar. Hey, I'm struggling with this with my fasting blood sugar. I've tried X, Y, and Z and it still hasn't worked. Like, do you have any tips for me? We have a really active community in there. Um, once you're a member, you're always a member. So we have some moms who are on like their third pregnancies and still in the course that can offer feedback. Awesome. But I also answer questions every single week. So I've been told that's arguably the biggest benefit of the course is you can get my eyes Absolutely. on it, get a second opinion. And since I don't have a whole lot of availability for one-on-one clients, that's really the main way you can get my feedback on what's going on. So that's, that's, helpful, I think, especially because there really isn't a one size fits all, you know, intervention for gestational diabetes. Obviously, there's some general truths that that work, you know, food and lifestyle wise, but the individual tinkering, that is something where you really need individualized attention versus like, here's this snack that works for every single one. Like there's just no such thing. I wish there was, it would make my life way easier. It would make everybody's lives easier. It would make the diagnosis less frustrating, but oftentimes it's like, okay, I need to get my blood sugar under control in two weeks. Otherwise they're going to put me on medication and Mm -hmm. people really need that kind of information at a, you know, right away at at a really important time, time point in their pregnancy. I love that you, you say that. I We have private groups too. And I feel like these groups are, they're just money. <laughs> they, oh, yeah. I mean, even just seeing like things that other people are asking, you're like, oh, I actually have that same question. And then maybe you reply to them and then, you know, it just filters down. Those groups are so awesome. So I love that you've created that and created a space for people because I don't feel like in the medical world, and this is not to shame the medical world, they just don't have time to like exactly do what you were saying, like, okay, you got this diagnosis, 
let's break it down for you as an individual. It's here's a sheet of paper that you can pull off Google, right? And it doesn't mean that it's uh, that applies to you. You have the diagnosis, so it could help you, but it doesn't mean it's going to be the best thing for you as an individual. And more so than that, sometimes you don't have a provider who is well-informed on updated research. So Mm -hmm. I get a lot of women in the course who are like, okay, I don't know if I really need this course, but I figured it would be a good idea. And then they jump in, they're like, I have my meeting with, you know, the dietitian this week. And then they come back in the group and they're like, so the dietitian said that what I'm doing is wrong and I need to eat this way. So I'm going to try it. And then they like come back three days later and they're like, my blood sugar was terrible. This advice didn't work. I feel awful. I need to go back to the original. And there's all I mean, it's just the ongoing thread of community members who've been through the same thing. And you know, ultimately, that's why I do the work that I do and write the books that I do is because the standard of care just doesn't often work or it's like 20 years outdated you know? um, <laughs> oh i can so relate to that when yeah. it comes to VBAC. i mean same thing where we've got one provider saying this and then another provider saying this it's very similar situations you're like well what is it what does the evidence really say you know right. oh well okay so i think i think i would like to just even start off with you know what is gestational diabetes? What does that mean? If you get this diagnosis, what does that mean? Yeah. So at its simplest definition, it is blood sugar that is elevated during pregnancy beyond a certain threshold, right? So the whole diabetes during pregnancy, I think, confuses people a little bit because like, how can I develop diabetes during pregnancy, but only pregnancy? Really, it's your blood sugars elevated beyond a certain threshold. There are other definitions like insulin resistance during pregnancy or carbohydrate intolerance during pregnancy. They're all speaking to the same thing. Your body has a more limited ability to bring your blood sugar down within the normal range for whatever reason. And there can be a number of different reasons. Sometimes there's pre-existing blood sugar issues before pregnancy that we didn't know about. And during pregnancy, we test for things, right? So there's a a whole lot of the population that's walking around essentially with prediabetes that has no idea. And then during pregnancy, we're screening blood sugar levels to rule out gestational diabetes, and then it's caught on that test. You Mm -hmm. think that it's something that developed during pregnancy, but it may have been an underlying blood sugar issue that you had for a while. We're simply identifying it at this point. So it can be newly developed, or it can be pre-existing and we've identified it at this time point. Mm-hmm. There's technically both called gestational diabetes, regardless of the underlying reason. Okay. I did not know that. So I didn't know that we could be, it, it just like appear, you know, it doesn't just appear like sometimes we, it could be pre-existing. And are there signs pre-existing that we could know that like we did have that? Or are there things that we can do pre-pregnancy to try and even like say say I have high sugars or whatever right now but I didn't know and then I get pregnant and I get gestational diabetes but are there things we can do during pre-pregnancy to I don't know the exact way to say it like almost like nix it (laughs) like to try and help reduce it or not have it at all yeah so there there are and there's kind of a mix here when we talk about risk factors because some of the risk factors are things within our control. And some of the risk factors are things that 
aren't within our control. We can't control whether our mom had gestational diabetes in her pregnancy, whether we have a lot of type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance in our family. We can't control our age. We can't con- mm-hmm. we can't necessarily like immediately, you know, change our weight at the time of conception, but that you know, long, over the long term, we can have some influence over our weight. But yeah. if we're talking retroactively, you can't like go back, you know, four right. months and be like, oh, I, I wish I had weighed 20 pounds, you know, less before uh-huh. I conceived. You can control, of course, the food you're eating. You can control the micronutrients that you're taking in. So there's a lot of nutrients that can reduce our baseline levels of insulin resistance, like magnesium and vitamin D and inositol and several other things eating sufficient amounts of protein seems to be protective. Our sleep habits can play an impact on our, our insulin resistance and uh, our stress levels can play a role. And gosh, there was one does more that cortisol, was just... Does cortisol, high cortisol impact our sugars? Yes, high cortisol. Ability to come down. Mm-hmm, high cortisol raises your blood sugar. Physical activity levels, both before conception and during pregnancy, the more exercise we get, generally speaking, the lower our risk of gestational diabetes. Mm. So there are things and, and yeah. sometimes, you know, we have so many risk factors that are outside of our control, like the family history stuff right. and like age at conception, where perhaps we have, you know, a, a pre-existing elevated risk, which makes all those lifestyle factors which are in your control, arguably that much more important because those are the areas Mm -hmm. where we can make a difference. Make a difference. So what can, what, what can we do? We, we, We can lower our stress. We can increase our sleep. We can be physically active. We can eat real food. Um, but can we talk more about that real food? Like what can we really eat during that? Yeah. So the, Biggest thing to keep in mind, I would say, is your macronutrient balance, like your your balance of carbohydrates, fat, and protein, as well as the quality of the food that you're eating. Specifically looking at eating a sufficient amount of protein. Protein tends to be the most stabilizing for our blood sugar levels, whereas carbohydrates are the macronutrient that raises our blood sugar levels the most. When we eat enough protein, we also, it has a regulating effect on our appetite since it stabilizes our blood sugar and we don't get a a huge blood sugar spike and crash like Mm -hmm. we do with carbs. We don't get the cravings and that same intensity of hunger leading up to mealtime or snack time. So hitting our protein goals is like, that's absolutely essential. Um, And then second to that, the next most important thing is thinking about the quality of the carbohydrates you consume. So it's kind of wild, but in the US, you know, 60% of calories consumed on the average American diet are from ultra processed foods. And these are things made where the, you know, primary ingredient usually is a refined carbohydrate of some kind. Mm -hmm. It's a refined starch or like white flour, corn starch, Mm -hmm. something like that, maltodextrin, or a refined sugar, like white sugar, corn syrup, high fructose corn syrup, and then all the random additives and junk Mm -hmm. added to it. Basically, a lot of things that are in like the snack and dessert aisle and prepackaged food 
aisles in our grocery store, breakfast cereals and that sort of thing. If we simply displace even a portion, even 25% of this, you know, majority of our diet that's coming from ultra processed mm-hmm. foods, we will have better blood sugar levels. Even mm-hmm. if they're being replaced with carbohydrate foods, but they're not highly, highly processed, like you'll have better blood sugar better levels. Better blood sugar, yeah. But especially if we're replacing some of that with protein-rich foods. So I'd say it's like twofold. It's like the macronutrients, and then it's like quality of the food we're eating, trying to eat as much whole foods as possible to displace the processed food items. When you hit your protein goals, mm-hmm. you're not going to have the intense cravings for as much of the processed stuff. So like, I like to hit it from the front end instead of being reactive, like cut out the processed foods, like easier said than done. What are you going to eat instead? Try getting enough protein and you'll find that you are drawn less to those foods in the first place. And with protein, what do you know, like on average, I mean, it's hard because we're all different ages and weights and heights and all the things, but on average, like how much during pregnancy, how much protein should a pregnant person consume? Yeah. So some of it, there's, there's ballparks that we can use ballpark metrics. And there's some that are more specifically based on like an amount of protein based on how much you weigh because protein Mm -hmm. needs are individualized by a person's body size. Right. Um, So if we just use a standard, let's say like 150 pound woman in early pregnancy, you need about 80 grams of protein per day. And in late pregnancy, you need a minimum of about 100 grams per day. And this is actually higher than was previously thought. Our first ever study that directly measured protein needs in pregnancy was done in 2015. And they found that our recommendations are way too low. Okay. Um, yeah, 80 to 100 to me seems really low. I'm not pregnant, right? And yeah. I typically try to get more protein than that. Well, 80 to 100 is a lot more than what the current recommendations crazy, are. Yeah. So the current recommendations for late pregnancy on average are about 71 grams of protein per day. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. So we need to beef it up. We need to we need to get some some yep. protein in. And it depends on the person too. We have some individuals who are highly physically active or maybe if your blood sugar is really really sensitive to carbohydrates, like you might do better having a higher proportion of protein in your mm-hmm. diet than another person. So while 80 to 100 is a good, you know, mm-hmm. minimum ballpark metric, you might do better aiming for, you know, 100 or 110 grams per day Mm -hmm. in early pregnancy and later on aiming for like 120 to 150 grams. Like it, it really Mm -hmm. depends on the person. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. Yeah. That is pretty crazy. So, okay. Now we know we got to get our protein. What are the best sources of protein? Cause that's something that I do find that sometimes it's hard. It's really hard to get whole protein. And sometimes I do have to supplement with a shake or adding some protein collagen to my oatmeal or something. So how, what types of proteins or where, what sources of proteins or what ideas could we give to our listeners? Yeah. So, I mean, our, when you think of protein, there's a lot of different foods that contain protein, but they have proteins 
in different concentrations, or there's a different balance of amino acids within those proteins. So our, you know, highest quality, best balance of amino acids, highest concentration of protein per the amount of food you're eating is from Mm -hmm. our animal foods. So meat, fish, eggs, dairy, seafood, those will have your highest concentration of protein relative to any of the other macronutrients. As you go into your um, plant source proteins, you'll Mm -hmm. have lower proportion of protein and like just a different or more incomplete amino acid balance. So, you know, you'll get a lot more carbohydrates along with that protein, but they of course Mm -hmm. have other, you know, positive things for them. Our plant proteins come with fiber, for example. So our beans and legumes of the plant proteins would be the highest quality ones that you can get. We have smaller, significantly smaller proportions of protein in our grains, for example. Nuts and seeds Mm -hmm. are a decent source. You can also get, of course, all sorts of protein supplements. They can extract protein Mm -hmm. from anything that's protein rich, right? And market it as a supplement. So we have our grass-fed whey protein on our beef protein isolate, and we have rice protein concentrate Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, all sorts of things. So you have your pick. If you're not getting enough from food, you can always supplement with additional on the side. But my recommendation really is to try to get a balance of different protein sources, since there are pros and cons of all of our different proteins, just try to get a mix. And that amount is, and which forms might be different person to person based on their preferences. Yeah, that makes total sense. And kind of talking about like, just some things have less. So for any listeners that maybe are not eating meat or don't eat meat, how, I mean, just eating a lot of beans and legumes and nuts and stuff like that, or how, I don't know, is there like a a higher risk there if we don't eat pro like meat? <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, is it harder to get it in or, and how can they focus more on it is, getting it that? Is, it is a bigger challenge. Vegetarians and vegans do consume on average significantly less protein than omnivores. Mm -hmm. You can kind of plan around it by having a higher proportion of beans and legumes versus grains and considering some specific high protein options like tempeh, a fermented soy product. Not a huge fan of lots of soy, but fermented soy, as long as it's organic, can be okay. And, And tempeh is quite high in protein, relatively low in carbohydrates your nuts and seeds can contribute more and you can consider supplemental protein options. It does definitely get tricky, particularly as we talk about gestational diabetes with blood sugar management on Mm -hmm. a vegetarian and vegan diet, simply because most of our plant sources of protein, if you're consuming them as a whole food, they have a significant amount of carbohydrates. So sure, Mm -hmm. you can get protein from beans, but beans also have carbohydrates. Sure. There's some protein in quinoa, but it's like eight grams of protein per like 40 something grams of carbohydrates in that Mm -hmm. serving. Whereas if you were going to consume eight grams of protein from meat, that's literally like a little more than one ounce of meat and it has zero carbohydrates. So when you're looking at 
macronutrient balance, it gets a little bit trickier. And so for Mm -hmm. vegetarians and vegans, I mean, with vegetarians, you have eggs and dairy. And so you can do more eggs, you can do more low carbohydrate dairy products, like cheeses, cottage cheese, Greek yogurt, or dairy protein powders, egg protein powders. And that makes the macronutrient balance much easier. With Mm -hmm. vegans, we generally do need to rely on some supplemental protein powders just so we're not overdoing the carbohydrates. So it it gets, it does get significantly trickier. It's not that it's not doable, but there's of course always, you know, different trade-offs with different dietary approaches. For sure. I'm gonna take a quick break from our amazing episode today to continue talking about preparing for a VBAC. I mentioned Needed earlier, and I just wanted to expand on why I suggest them. They offer radically better nutrition products. They offer the most comprehensive prenatal that's available in both a delicious tasting vanilla powder and in capsule form. And don't just take my word for it. The women in our VBAC community have fallen in love with their products too, and are noticing a difference in their energy, digestion, and their mood. Just like we talk about making sure your provider is VBAC supportive or not, I suggest you do the same with your prenatals. Here's the deal. 95% of women in the prenatal stages have nutrient deficiencies. Most prenatal vitamins include the bare minimum nutrition based on outdated guidelines and stale research. We deserve to thrive, not just survive. Needed offers radically better nutrition products, education, and advocacy rooted in clinical research and practitioner validation. Their products are third-party tested and backed by clinical insights from over 4,000 practitioners. They are thoughtful about every ingredient using exactly what is needed in bioavailable forms. And this is important because you and your baby deserve the best. If you are not already one of the hundreds of women in our Women of Strength community using Needed as your prenatal, consider switching to Needed. Get 20% off your order by using VBAC20 at checkout. You can visit that at thisisneeded.com and use code VBAC, V-B-A-C, 2-0 at checkout. So I'm talking about, so we've talked a little bit about the carbs and the proteins and the fats. So a lot of like say salmon, you know, salmon or even eggs. Uh, We've got egg whites, but then we got like yolks, which is consumes a lot of fat, right? So how does fat play into or does it play into gestational diabetes? So similar to protein, fat does not raise your blood sugar levels. So generally speaking, fat is not something you need to be overly worried about necessarily. That definitely flies in the face of conventional guidelines, which tell you to limit your fat pretty significantly. But We have to really be cautious when we talk about limiting fat in pregnancy. So first of all, we're in a situation where your hormone production is higher than ever. And our sex hormones like estrogen and progesterone are built on a backbone of cholesterol, which you get in fatty foods, specifically your Mm -hmm. fatty animal foods and whatever you don't consume, your body produces. So if we're not consuming, you know, if we're cutting out all the fat out of everything, you actually run into problems with hormone production. And they've shown this in studies where they limit fat in women, estrogen and progesterone production can be like 20 to 50% lower. Mm. Um, So even though your body has the ability to create cholesterol from other precursors, 
it still negatively impacts hormone production to not be consuming it. So I do get concerned about that. I do also get concerned that when you start limit limiting fat from food, we're also limiting our intake of a lot of micronutrients. So egg yolks, you gave the example of egg yolks. Egg yolks are high in cholesterol, yes. They are also mm-hmm. the richest dietary source of choline, which is a mm-hmm. nutrient we need for optimal placental function, optimal fetal brain development. And when we're not getting enough, it's linked to many significant problems. I mean, we mm-hmm. now have very high quality studies, like randomized controlled trials showing that taking in actually more than double the current recommended intake for choline improves child brain development through their mm-hmm. toddler years, all the way the study has been now extended through age seven, they followed these kids through age seven, and they have better brain function, essentially, um, wow. at those later ages. So if you're cutting out egg yolks, for the goal of reducing your fat or cholesterol intake, mm-hmm. you are essentially setting yourself up for a choline deficiency, like half of the choline an average American takes in is from eggs, it is Thanks. just such a concentrated source. And you could extend that to many other examples for many other nutrients in foods that naturally contain fat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a significant concern of mine, actually, as people get so laser focused on fat that they lose the big picture on like, what are you missing what out it's on? it's actually giving you. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I'm not a big fan of limiting the fat intake. And particularly when you're talking about blood sugar control, if you're reducing your carbohydrate levels, like then you're reducing your calories taken in from carbs. You have to eat something else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we can only eat so much protein. So it always yeah. ends up being a dance between are you eating more carbohydrates? Or are you eating more fat? That's always how the balance is mm-hmm. made up in terms of our, our macronutrient ratios. So certainly, you know, I love the protein. I'm all about eating protein. But our protein-rich foods do naturally come with fat. And so what I am personally not a fan of is people obsessively taking out the fat of all of their protein-rich foods. Just eat the fat that's in there. You don't need to add massive quantities of fat to everything you're eating. Just don't take out what's naturally there. There. Yeah. 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 I love that you talk about that because one of the things that I I feel like, so I'm a, I'm a doula and I've seen this in all the years of being a doula, but then I've also kind of seen this trend of messages coming in of things like, I'm scared to eat too much. I'm scared to eat fat. I'm scared to eat these things because I'm scared of a quote unquote big baby, or I'm scared of having to have a C-section because my baby's measuring big. Or they're so scared of shoulder dystocia. So they're now having to induce me at 38 weeks, which we already know with gestational diabetes, a lot of the times providers encourage induction early anyway. Um, So can we kind of talk about, I mean, so don't cut out, ladies, do not cut out your fats, eat your good proteins, get the right kind of carbs. But how can we, like, what does it look like with gestational diabetes? Like, do we have to have a baby at 39 weeks like many providers suggest do we ha- do we like always have a big baby if we have gestational diabetes absolutely not right like can absolutely we talk not. more about that and kind of like you know cross out those myths <laughs> yeah so we have 
very strong data actually that when we are able to keep blood sugar within range as much as possible, it's not going to be perfect, but as much as possible, right. keeping your blood sugar within a healthy level and your provider should give you some guidelines if you don't go to go and read real food for gestational diabetes. Seriously, um, go get your book and the link is in the show notes, everybody. Yeah, we we see a 50% lower risk of macrosomia. We see a that's, you know, baby being born larger Too than expected. Large. Yeah, um, we see a 60% lower risk of shoulder dystocia. Whoa. So it's absolute these risks are absolutely can be lessened with with dietary and lifestyle intervention. And what what frustrates me the most, and that's why I wrote Real Food for Gestational Diabetes in the first place, is that these standard guidelines for dietary management of gestational diabetes fails to improve outcomes because it often fails to control blood sugar levels because they are mm. arbitrarily way too high in carbohydrates. And mm. so what ends up happening is you get these women who get a meal plan that says eat like 45 to 60 grams of carbohydrates at a meal, a super minimal amount of protein, barely any fat, because this is all just an offshoot of the standard dietary guidelines, mm -hmm. and their blood sugar goes way too high after their meals. And they're like, what is going on? I'm eating per the guideline. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, you know, they're simply consuming way, way too many carbohydrates for what their body can tolerate. I mean, it makes no sense. If you failed a glucose tolerance test, meaning your blood sugar was not able to come down within range when you had anywhere from 50, 75 to 100 grams of glucose at one sitting, why are we then giving you 45, 60, 75 grams of carbohydrates, which mm -hmm. turn into glucose, yeah. in a sitting at a meal and saying that this is treatment? It is not treatment. And mm -hmm. anybody with a toddler level logic can see <laughs> that it makes no sense no whatsoever. Sense. Ironically, it's very highly controversial advice to recommend a lower than that carbohydrate intake. And that's precisely what I present in my book with the evidence to back it up. But that still remains the standard of care. So then what ends up happening, you get these women who end up afraid to eat, because exactly. they're worried about their blood sugar. going yes. too high. So they eat the same type of meal, yes, eat a really, really tiny portion, and they are starving. And they're malnourished. And exactly. Like, they're, and they're not getting the macro or micronutrients in their it bodies. Is, it is tragic and it yes. is unethical in my opinion. So if you do find yourself in that scenario where you feel like you're having to starve yourself to keep your blood sugar within range, but like after you check your blood sugar after that meal, you're like clamoring for a snack because you're mm -hmm. so hungry. There is another way. Yes. <laughs> and it does involve nourishing yourself enough you have to get enough calories in yes. and you can get enough calories in and micronutrients in without the blood sugar spike just yes. with a different macronutrient balance so you need to be eating a lot more protein you need to ditch the fear of fat and you need to eat a quantity of carbohydrates that your body can manage in one sitting. And oftentimes that isn't 45 to 60 grams or 75 grams of carbohydrates per meal. That might be like 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 grams of carbs at a meal. 
It might mean eating your protein-rich foods first before you have your carbs at the end of the meal. That can significantly change how your blood sugar responds. But the standard approach is very ineffective. And I can tell you when they have actually done studies where they switch people to a lower glycemic index diet, so like better quality carbohydrates, more protein, and the chances that a woman will require insulin to manage her blood sugar drops by like 50%. Um, And that can make the difference between your birth being sabotaged, overly intervened, you being denied a VBAC, them trying to scare you into the, your baby's too big, that whole conversation. That can make the difference of it. So we really need to get better better information out um, because it's not it's not fair gestational diabetes is over it's poorly managed and it's overly medicalized when it is diagnosed I that is I feel the same I feel it it is just like and some people have described it as like oh it just it checked off a box saying like you're in this category automatically yes because you tested positive Yep. And then and then they do, they go down rabbit holes. And and women of strength, if you are listening and you are someone that feels like you can't eat a lot or you're in that space, you're you're the person that we are describing, you're not alone. Yeah. You are not alone in this world, but you have more options. And that is something that I just that's why I wanted to do this episode because it it like it makes me want to cry. Yeah. Because I hate I, I feel their frustration, but it also makes me want to punch someone. <laughs> not the not the per- not not our listener, but like it just makes me want to punch someone and be like, "Wake up! Like, yeah. give different information and stop putting this pressure of you can't have a V back. You're gonna have shoulder dystocia. You have to have a baby by 38 or 39 weeks. You you know all these things, or your baby's too big. All the- it's just oh why yeah. instead of just diving in and yeah. learning how to better manage right and to eat better eat more real foods i mean if your blood Um, sugar is maintained in a healthy range for the majority of your pregnancy you are not at any higher risk than anybody who didn't get a diagnosis so Mm. all of these things that are potential risk factors i mean the the macrosomia conversation you know you can have women who passed a gestational diabetes test, but maybe they gained quite a bit more weight than is expected over the course of their pregnancy, they're actually oftentimes at a higher risk for macrosomia than the Mm -hmm. woman who is diagnosed with gestational diabetes who had excellent blood sugar control. Like nobody talks about that, right? So Mm -hmm. to me, the, the difference is really in how you manage it. I think we have to try to lose the fear over the diagnosis, it, it is an unfortunate yes. reality that for a lot of providers, you can be treated differently because of the mm-hmm. diagnosis, even though I disagree yes. with that. But yes. you can maintain actually quite a low risk pregnancy, sometimes an even lower risk than if you hadn't been diagnosed. Because if you see this as a blessing in disguise and take it upon yourself to improve your diet and lifestyle and really like buckle down on this and and get your blood sugar in a healthy range, you now are having a healthier pregnancy than if you didn't have the diagnosis because you're, you know, taking a moment to be like, (laughs) 
hmm, yes, I'm pregnant and I'd like to eat for two, but you know what? I'm actually full. I don't think I'm going to have that extra cupcake or whatever. Like it's all of those consistent blood sugar elevations with or without a gestational diabetes diagnosis that's contributing to the baby growing larger than expected. When you bring the blood sugar within range, we see a significantly reduced risk of, of macrosomia. Yeah. So this, this episode, I feel like has so many really great tips on just how to eat better in general during pregnancy, even if you don't have gestational diabetes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So, and before we, we were recording, we were talking about your new book and you said something that I was like, wait, what? It like caught my ear and I was like, wait, what? Because PCOS, PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Um, it runs in my family and you were talking about how PCOS could be like a sign. It's a risk factor for gestational diabetes. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So can we talk a little bit more about some of those risk factors or may, how, if we maybe have these things, we may need to be, you know, extra aware or maybe a little more extra aware and, and intentional, right? Intentional. Yeah. That's a good word for it. Yeah. So with uh, PCOS, I mean, PCOS is a bit of a complicated diagnosis. Um, Mm -hmm. There are different subtypes. There's actually four phenotypes and Mm -hmm. they're all uh, just a little bit different. They share some overlap, but they're all a little bit different. That said, the majority of PCOS cases do have some degree of insulin resistance ongoing in their body. So your body doesn't respond normally to insulin and bring your blood sugar down within range with a normal level of insulin. Your body has to release a lot of insulin to bring your blood sugar within range. And this is a risk factor for gestational diabetes because during pregnancy, your body naturally becomes a little more insulin resistant. So if you're already coming into pregnancy with that baseline challenge with responding to your insulin when your body goes to you know start pumping out more insulin your insulin resistance is going up and up and up it can just compound and be uh, too much for your body to handle so your your blood sugar will surpass that threshold of so-called gestational diabetes so that is a significant risk factor it also tends to be you know it's pcos is the most common ovulatory issue in women so it can make conception a little more challenging. It can make timing sex accurately for conception more challenging but mm-hmm. because oftentimes there's really long cycle or delays in ovulation. So it's harder to time it right. Although women with PCOS often can conceive successfully naturally, it can just be a little more tricky. And then when there is already a blood sugar issue going on ahead of time, there is a higher rate of early miscarriage as well. Now, the things that you do for managing PCOS, there's a lot of overlap with this, the same concepts for managing gestational diabetes. So if you do have that diagnosis um, and you're thinking about becoming pregnant, you can implement some of the same tips that we talked about today for blood sugar management, uh, higher mm-hmm. protein, fewer carbohydrates, better quality carbohydrates, eating your protein-rich foods first at mealtimes considering supplementing with certain nutrients to reduce your level of insulin resistance. There's some really excellent data on inositol, which is a B vitamin-like compound 
for uh, reducing insulin resistance and improving, you know, ovulation, um, ovulatory function in these women. And that is a supplement that honestly, they've, they've done studies where they put it head to head with metformin, which is the most common medication Mm. prescribed for women with PCOS. It's also prescribed for gestational diabetes management. um, And it often performs the same or better than metformin. So inositol is a really uh, viable option that women could could look into and consider supplementing with. Um, We talk about it pretty extensively in, in Real Food for Fertility as an option, along with many other nutrients. I mean, there's a lot of different micronutrients that play a role in keeping our level of insulin resistance like down as much as possible. And so just improving overall the quality of your diet, where Mm -hmm. like naturally you're just displacing more and more of these processed foods from your life, because these also are so rich in micronutrients, you're naturally improving your function Mm -hmm. of your pancreas and how responsive your body is to insulin and your blood sugar doesn't spike as much because you're not getting as many refined carbohydrates in. Like there's a lot of these things that kind of all work in tandem they work together. together. Yeah. Yeah. And they continue to be important during pregnancy as well. So wherever you're at, you know, start now, <laughs> start thinking about start this now. now. Yeah. Yes. Start now. It's never too late to start. And like, like I was saying in the beginning, like we live in a busy life. So that quick, granola protein bar that you know whatever that's easily unpackaged and in the car that you can take a bite of it may be an okay snack but may not be the best maybe carrots you know like you can eat carrots so there's maybe having a bag of nuts or some beef jerky like the nuts would be similar to a granola bar but they're much lower in carbohydrates they have more protein fat and fiber in them so they won't spike your blood sugar but they may fill you up better in right. the granola bar and with a significantly lower blood sugar spike for sure. Right. And I guess carrots are a lot of their carbs. So it turns into sugar. I huh? mean, carrots are like they're, they, they do have carbohydrates, but they have quite a bit of fiber in them. So um, they'll, they're a fine option as well. Yeah. They're just pretty low in protein and have no yeah. fat. And they're so low in calories that as a, it's not going to help you feel fully as a snack. Yeah. Yes. It's not going to keep you full. I've got nothing against carrots. Carrots yes. are excellent. But um, maybe having it with like a cottage cheese dip or something like that would yeah. at least provide you a little more sustenance. Yes. You know? <laughs> going back to the protein. See, we forget the protein. Yep. Focusing on the protein. Well, I, I just adore you. I think this is such a great episode. And I like, I just need to go get your books now. I mean, I'm not even pregnant or gonna have I mean I'm done with having babies but I want to dive in more I want to learn more because like I said it's just it's such a hot topic for our VBAC community especially because you know we have so many naysayers (laughs) Um, like oh you can't do this if you have this so okay tell us more so you've got your website lilynicholsrdn.com and I know you've got like the blog, your shop, your books, all the things. So tell us more about where we can find you and what resources we can we can use. And we're going to sure. make sure to put everything in the show notes, you guys. Yeah. So up on my website, definitely click the freebies tab. There's a, you know, you could download a free chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy if you want to dive more into like, what is real food? What are you talking about? 
that is available for free. There's a free video series on gestational Mm -hmm. diabetes that's really helpful to help you kind of like, if you've just been diagnosed or worried about being diagnosed, that'll kind of narrow down the starting point. Because the biggest thing I hear is that people are really afraid and overwhelmed by what to do. It just feels very dire. You were given the diagnosis. You're told that it comes with these risks Mm -hmm. and you're not told any good news. So I try to be the bearer of good news and and empowering information so you can actually take action on that. Um, that. So probably those two resources would be of most interest to to this audience. Um, I'm also on... Instagram. My handle is Lily Nichols RDN. So pretty much the same as my website. And yeah, keep an eye out for the new book, Real Food for Fertility in uh, February 2024. It's coming out this month, this month that this episode is being aired, right? Yeah. 2024. That is so exciting. And that one is on fertility, infertility, correct? On fertility. Yeah. It's on fertility. Yep. And that one is um, actually co-authored this book with my colleague, Lisa Hendrickson Jack. She's the uh, host of the Fertility Friday podcast and author of the fifth vital sign. So Mm -hmm. we um, joined forces to talk about, you know, the food and nutrition part, the fertility hormone, menstrual cycle part. Um, and it really is a, uh, the best of both worlds from our, from our respective specialties. I love that so much. Well, we will have the links for both of your books. And then like she said, give her a follow so you can know when this new book is coming out. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the vbacklink.com slash share to submit your story. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, the worldwide database for VBAC doulas, and more, head over to thevbaclink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.